North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. Happy Thanksgiving. This is a wonderful day, a day most fitting for the people of God especially, but indeed for anyone who's alive uh, to give thanks for all that he has and especially all that he has received, which is everything. When the Apostle Paul said, what do you have that you have not received? I think that very few of us grasp how much meaning the idea of Thanksgiving should have for us whether culturally, but especially theologically. What I want to do for this day is provide you with something easy and upbuilding to listen to, not a new set of uh, enormous new ideas, but uh, something that going into December we'll be talking about more, which is where culture comes from. You have maybe heard the saying that politics is downstream from culture, but a lot of us spend most of our time thinking politically about things that immediately need to be achieved or should immediately be changed. And I want to think about, but also encourage you to ponder, uh, and I hope to produce things of lasting value, that is, of beauty, 
of truth, of goodness. And we think a lot about that with our families, with the people we spend our time with. But think about it also in terms of the works that I'm going to be reading to you with just a little bit of commentary, particular to November, not just to Thanksgiving, ending with Thanksgiving, but especially uh, for November, for this season of the year, as darkness encroaches and in the church we're taught to think about last things, about death, about judgment, about resurrection. So as you hear these things, I hope you enjoy them. I hope you have a wonderful time with your loved ones, with your family, with your church, listening to some of these things, and uh, I hope enjoying it all. God bless you. Have a happy Thanksgiving. From Sulpicius Severus's life of St. Martin of Tours, who gives his name to this season in the medieval church called Martinmas, this final season of the year, Martin of Tours, a saint of antiquity, who was a Roman soldier before his conversion. Let me read to you a couple chapters from Sulpicius's Life of Martin, and you can find the link to read more for yourself in the show notes. Most men being vainly devoted to the pursuit of worldly glory have, as they imagined, acquired a memorial of their own names from this source, that is, devoting their pens to the embellishment of the lives of famous men. This course, although it did not secure for them a lasting reputation, still has undoubtedly brought them some fulfillment of the hope they cherished. It has done so both by preserving their own memory, though to no purpose, and because, through their having presented to the world the examples of great men, no small emulation has been excited in the bosoms of their readers. Yet notwithstanding these things, their labors have in no degree borne upon the blessed and never-ending life to which we look forward. For what has a glory, destined to perish with the world, profited those men themselves who have written on mere secular matters? Or what benefit has posterity derived from reading of Hector as a warrior, or Socrates as an expounder of philosophy? There can be no profit in such things, since it is not only folly to imitate the persons referred to, but absolute madness not to assail them with the utmost severity. For, in truth, those persons who estimate human life only by present actions have consigned their hopes to fables and their souls to the tomb. In fact, they gave themselves up to be perpetuated simply in the memory of mortals, whereas it is the duty of man rather to seek after eternal life than an eternal memorial, and that not by writing or fighting or philosophizing, but by living a pious, holy, and religious life. This erroneous conduct of mankind, being enshrined in literature, has prevailed to such an extent that it has found many who have been emulous either of the vain philosophy or the foolish excellence which has been celebrated. For this reason, I think I will accomplish something well worth the necessary pains if I write the life of a most holy man, which shall serve in future as an example to others, by which, indeed, the readers shall be roused to the pursuit of true knowledge and heavenly warfare and divine virtue. In so doing, we have regard also to our own advantage, so that we may look for not a vain remembrance among men, but an eternal reward from God.
For although we ourselves have not lived in such a manner that we can serve for an example to others, nevertheless, we have made it our endeavor that he should not remain unknown who was a man worthy of imitation. I shall therefore set about writing the life of St. Martin, and shall narrate both what he did previous to his episcopate and what he performed as a bishop. At the same time, I cannot hope to set forth all that he was or did. Those excellences of which he alone was conscious are completely unknown, because as he did not seek for honor from men, he desired as much as he could accomplish it that his virtues should be concealed. And even of those which had become known to us, we have omitted a great number, because we have judged it enough if only the more striking and eminent should be recorded. At the same time, I had in the interests of readers to see to it that no undue amount of instances being set before them should make them weary of the subject. But I implore those who are to read what follows to give full faith to the things narrated, and to believe that I have written nothing of which I had not certain knowledge and evidence. I should, in fact, have preferred to be silent rather than to narrate things which are false. You can see especially there the focus on remembrance of life and the living of a life as the most important thing rather than the being remembered among men. And of all the things that Severus confesses himself ignorant of in Martin's life, we know that God remembers those things. And when you think about the way that you live, which we talk about a lot in the show, um, I would encourage you to realize that your father sees in secret and those things are not unknown to him and your life and your name, even if unknown to people now, and certainly for all of us after we die, will not itself be therefore worthless, but its worth is guaranteed by who you are in Christ and what you do and how you live in Christ. And those things are all known to and remembered by God. Now, chapter 13 of this life is wonderful because we know that certain other people, especially Boniface, had to chop down trees. But you see the difficulties that Martin encountered among his own people, the Franks. So this is chapter 13 of Severus's life of Martin. Again, when in a certain village he had demolished a very ancient temple and had set about cutting down a pine tree which stood close to the temple, the chief priest of that place and a crowd of other heathens began to oppose him. And these people, though under the influence of the Lord, they had been quiet while the temple was being overthrown, could not patiently allow the tree to be cut down. Martin carefully instructed them that there was nothing sacred in the trunk of a tree, and urged them rather to honor God, whom he himself served. He added that there was a moral necessity why that tree should be cut down, because it had been dedicated to a demon. Then one of them, who was bolder than the others, says, If you have any trust in your God, whom you say you worship, we ourselves will cut down this tree, and be it your part to receive it when falling. For if, as you declare, your Lord is with you, you will escape all injury. Then Martin, courageously trusting in the Lord, promises that he would do what had been asked. Upon this, all that crowd of heathen agreed to the condition named, for they held the loss of their tree a small matter, if only they got the enemy of their religion buried beneath its fall. Accordingly, since that pine tree was hanging over in one direction, so that there was no doubt to what side it would fall on being cut, Martin, having been bound, is, in accordance with the decision of these pagans, 
placed in that spot where, as no one doubted, the tree was about to fall. They began, therefore, to cut down their own tree with great glee and joyfulness, while there was at some distance a great multitude of wandering spectators. But now the pine tree began to totter and to threaten its own ruin by falling. The monks at a distance grew pale, and terrified by the danger ever coming nearer, had lost all hope and confidence, expecting only the death of Martin. But he, trusting in the Lord and waiting courageously, when now the falling pine had uttered its expiring crash, while it was now falling, while it was just rushing upon him, simply holding up his hand against it, he put in its way the sign of salvation. Then indeed, after the manner of a spinning top, one might have thought it driven back. It swept round to the opposite side, to such a degree that it almost crushed the rustics, who had taken their places there in what was deemed a safe spot. Then truly a shout being raised to heaven, the heathen were amazed by the miracle while the monks wept for joy, and the name of Christ was in common extolled by all. The well-known result was that on that day salvation came to that region, for there was hardly one of that immense multitude of heathens who did not express a desire for the imposition of hands, and abandoning his impious errors, made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus. Certainly before the times of Martin, very few, nay, almost none, in those regions had received the name of Christ. But through his virtues and example, that name has prevailed to such an extent that now there is no place thereabouts which is not filled either with very crowded churches or monasteries. For wherever he destroyed heathen temples, there he used immediately to build either churches or monasteries. I know that some or maybe all of you are incredulous at that story, and that's that's fine. You can work that out for yourself. A couple things to call attention to. One is the idea that cultures are devoted to demons and that the central things in those cultures are devoted to demons when they are not devoted to Christ. And since they were not devoted to Christ then, if we have something that is outside Christ now, it is uh, probable, indeed, almost certain that it is devoted to demons. That is, it is devoted to that which consumes and depresses, but also that which, as you heard in the story, can be lightly given aside when the demons want to accomplish the destruction of the church. So you heard how the heathens readily said, okay, we'll cut down this tree, when <laughs> just a few minutes earlier, Martin wanted to cut down the tree, and they said, no, you can't do that. No, that's a bridge too far. You pulled down our temple, but don't cut down our tree. They're fine with having the tree cut down if it means Martin's death. So you can see the, the expediency that is at the heart of heathenry, the sheer desire to get what you want that is destructive, that will even end with you destroying things apparently sacred to you five minutes earlier. And that shift from something being apparently sacred to something being apparently expendable, not continuing in its sacredness, is something that I think you can see all over our culture where everything is expedient, everything may be given up for the sake of gain. So something to ponder in this time, anciently called Martin Mess, which is what we'll read next. Our last Martin-themed reading is a poem called Martin's Tide by the English priest and uh, scholar, beautiful student of the English language, William Barnes, 
whom I'd encourage you to look into more after this. He wrote in the dialect of his native Dorset. I'm not going to ape that on the podcast, but I will read as well as I can. His poem, Martin's Tide, uh, which he wrote for this time between November 11th and the beginning of Advent. Come bring a log a cleft wood, Jack, and fling it on again the back, and see the outside door is vast, the wind do blow a coldish blast. Come, so's come, pull your chairs in round afore the fire, and let's sit down, and keep up Martin's tide, for I shall keep it up till I do die. Twar Martinmas and our affair, when Jean and I, a happy pair, first walked to keeping up the tide, among the stannins side by side. And thick day twelve month, never failin, she give me at the ra- chancel railin a heart, though I do sound her praise, as true as ever beat in stays. How vast the time do go do seem, but yesterday, tis like a dream. Ask, tis now some years ago you first knew me, and I knew you, and we've a had some bits of fun by winter fire and summer sun. I we've a proud and rigged about like cats, in harm's way more than out, and busy with the tricks we played in fun to outwit chap or maid, and out afore the blazon hearth, our nursy tongues in winter mirth, for a shook the warmin pan a hung beside us till his cover rung. There twere but the other day this chap, our Robert, were a child in lap, and Paul's two little legs hung down, from thick old chair a span from ground, and now the saucy wench do stride about with steps at three feet wide. How time do go, a life do seem, as twere a year, tis like a dream. So beautiful in its look back on all that has passed since he last sat down at this time, when the light is growing less and the night is growing longer. So he wants Jack to throw another log on the fire so that they can remember what has come before. And that idea of remembering is one that should cause thanksgiving. There's a fondness and a sweetness, not only about his children, Robert and Polly, uh, who were little when he sat down before in years past, And now they're walking around and doing the very uh, young person things that he himself once did with his friend Jack. There's also the beautiful reminiscence of his wife, Jean, who who gave him a heart at the chancel railing, a heart, though I do sound her praise, as true as ever beat in stays. And the remembrance here is a remembrance not only of how brief life is. A life do pass. A life is like a year how vast the time do go, he says. But it's a remembrance, too, of all the beauty and the goodness that has come through that life and is still there in the friendship around the hearth and the joy of remembering things and the joy of the family that has grown and changed but remains. As we look at sadder things in remembrance of Armistice Day, now called Veterans Day, the end of the First World War, a time of the reign of death, which we'll hear about. Recall Barnes's joy and beauty, not so much in human achievements or human failures, but in the gifts that the seasons and the years have brought. What I'll read now in a series are four poems from the First World War, some of them by soldiers, some of them not, moving in rough chronological order through the war. 
I'll give you the title and the author, and then I'll talk about them, but I'll do all the poems one by one. The first, By a Soldier Who Would Perish in the War, Rupert Brooke, is a poem from early on called Peace. Now God be thanked who has matched us with this hour and caught our youth and awakened us from sleeping with hand made sure, clear eye and sharpened power to turn as swimmers into cleanness leaping. Glad from a world grown old and cold and weary, leave the sick hearts that honor could not move and half men and their dirty songs and dreary and all the little emptiness of love. Oh, we who have known shame, we have found release there, where there's no ill, no grief, but sleep has mending. Naught broken save this body, lost but breath, nothing to shake the laughing hearts, long peace there, but only agony, and that has ending. And the worst friend and enemy is but death. And by the same author, the dead. These hearts were woven of human joys and cares, washed marvelously with sorrow, swift to mirth. The years had given them kindness. Dawn was theirs, and sunset, and the colors of the earth. These had seen movement and heard music, known, slumber and waking, loved, gone proudly friended, felt the quick stir of wonder, sat alone, touched flowers and furs and cheeks. All this is ended. There are waters blown by changing winds to laughter and lit by the rich skies all day and after. Frost, with a gesture, stays the waves that dance and wandering loveliness. He leaves a white, unbroken glory, a gathered radiance, a width, a shining peace under the night. Perhaps the most famous of the four is In Flanders Fields by John McRae, commemorating the death of British and Canadian troops, I believe, especially in the Battle of the Somme in 1916. This is the origin of poppies being used, especially in Britain and the Commonwealth countries for what they call Remembrance Day, what we now call since 1954 Veterans Day, but which we at least originally called Armistice Day, a time remembering peace. In Flanders Fields by John McRae. In Flanders Fields the poppies blow Between the crosses row on row That mark our place and in the sky The larks still bravely singing fly Scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago we lived, Felt dawn, saw sunset glow, Loved and were loved, And now we lie in Flanders Fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe, to you from failing hands we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders fields. And the final poem by a man who wrote a great deal of poetry, but is remembered almost solely for his novels at this point, Thomas Hardy, from the 11th of November, 1918, on the signing of the armistice, the poem, And There Was a Great Calm. There had been years of passion, scorching, cold, and much despair, and anger heaving high, care whitely watching, sorrows manifold, among the young, among the weak and old, and the pensive spirit of pity whispered, Why? Men had not paused to answer. 
foes distraught pierced the thinned peoples in a brute-like blindness, philosophies that sages long had taught, and selflessness were as an unknown thought, and hell and shell were yapped at loving-kindness. The feeble folk at home had grown full use to dugouts, snipers, huns from the war adept, in the morning's herd and at eve-tides perused, to day-dreamt men in millions when they mused, to nightmare men in millions when they slept, waking to wish existence timeless, null, serious they watched above where armies fell. He seemed to check his flapping when, in the lull of night, a boom came thencewise, like the dull plunge of a stone dropped into some deep well. So, when old hopes that earth was bettering slowly were dead and damned, there sounded, War is done. One morrow, said the bereft and meek and lowly, Will men some day be given to grace, yea, holy, and in good sooth as our dreams used to run? Breathless they paused. Out there men raised their glance to where had stood those poplars lank and lopped, as they had raised it through the four years' dance of death in the now familiar flats of France, and murmured, Strange this, how? All firing stopped? Aye, all was hushed. The about-to-fire fired not, the aimed-at moved away in translipped song. One checkless regiment slung a clinching shot and turned. The spirit of irony smirked out, What? Spoil peradventures woven of rage and wrong? Thenceforth no flying fires inflamed the gray, no hurtling shook the dewdrop from the thorn, no moan perplexed the mute bird on the spray. Worn horses mused, We are not whipped today. No weft-winged engines blurred the moon's thin horn. Calm fell. From heaven distilled a clemency. There was peace on earth and silence in the sky. Some could, some could not, shake off misery. The sinister spirit sneered, it had to be. And again the spirit of pity whispered, why? Most significant is that the day we now have been inculcated to think of as a day to give thanks to everyone who has served in the United States Armed Forces was originally the occasion of mass suffering and of relief, which I think you can hear mixed with disappointment in that last poem from Thomas Hardy. You can hear, too, the excitement of young men such as Rupert Brooke was for war, for something bolder and braver than a pedestrian life, but also a young man's foolish discontentment with things he doesn't yet know, <laughs> such as the joys that William Barnes was singing of just before, the joys of the family, and of the hearth, Brooke did not know those, and so can only see people not eager for war as cowards, as he said it, half-men. You can hear, too, the reluctance to state clearly what it is that we're fighting for in John McRae's poem. Those who would not honor the sacrifices made in Flanders Fields, I suppose, by keeping and holding Flanders Fields against you know, the evil Lutherans of the German Empire... I guess those people would be seen as betrayers. But we know now, certainly after Vietnam and Afghanistan at least, that even when the regime moves out of a place, 
it will explain to you how that wasn't really a betrayal. Notice the unsettledness of it all, how nature itself is overturned. You heard about the poplars lanked and lopped in the Hardy poem. Nature destroyed, lives cut off, and the only thing that is natural to which the results of the war can be compared by Rupert Brooke is the frost that falls and is very beautiful in its way, and that has already come to many of us or is coming for some of us, that frost that comes and blankets everything, but in it is death. (laughs) If you grow anything, whether for a living or just as a hobby, the frost is death and you have to protect life from the frost. So much can be destroyed and has been, especially in this month. Much goes away and passes away and the light is less than it was before. What a perfect time to remember the gift of life and to give thanks for it, where we'll go next as we remember the first Thanksgiving. The origin of our holiday of Thanksgiving in the United States goes far back beyond Thanksgiving Day as a certain Thursday in November, uh, which Abraham Lincoln attempted to make a national holiday in 1863. But it had lots of predecessors, all over the place, and not just as was maybe most commonly known, and what I'll read to you because we have the best records of it, a New England holiday. Days of Thanksgiving, like days of fasting and repentance, were proclaimed both by presidents before President Lincoln and by governors uh, in colonial times and lots of other figures by churches for a variety of occasions, whether the end of a war, such as the Mexican War, or the War of 1812, or the Revolution, or Thanksgiving for the lifting of, uh, you know, a, a problem with cholera or smallpox or something when those when those things happened, or or victory over marauding bands of Indians. The idea here was that people should respond corporately to corporate events. So, what that means is that if there is a funeral the entire congregation, and maybe the entire community should go. If there is common suffering, such as an actual epidemic, (laughs) uh, not like the ones we sometimes talk about on here, but an actual epidemic, then the whole community should turn to God in fasting and repentance. If there is a communal reason to give thanks, as there is, especially at time of harvest, then the community will do that. And the various kinds of Thanksgiving and of Thanksgiving days, maybe with small t, small d, throughout the colonies and and early America were what they were because of a common Christian impulse, not because of a government mandate, let's say, which is sometimes how I think people think about Thanksgiving Day. The way that we have it now is just a certain fixed version of something we used to do uh, spontaneously and at various times according to occasion. So something more common often in uh, Lutheran churches, especially German Lutheran churches, than Thanksgiving Day necessarily uh, before the 20th century was what is sometimes called harvest home, which would be, which we've kind of melded with Thanksgiving, which is, you know, fine and understandable, but was usually closer to the time of more normal harvest for most things, which would be late September, between late September and early November. So those days of Thanksgiving have now kind of melded into a single day on a Thursday in November, 
and what we'll look at uh, for the next few minutes is the Thanksgiving, both the first proclamation of Thanksgiving in the New England colonies, and then before that, the different accounts that we have of the first Thanksgiving. So to begin uh, in 1623, before we go back to 1621, is a beautiful statement by William Bradford, the governor of the colony, about uh, why they will have a day of Thanksgiving. And you can find things similar to this from all kinds of officials, the only exception that I'm aware of in our presidential history being in early America, Thomas Jefferson, because he thought (laughs) it was a mixing of church and state to proclaim a day of national Thanksgiving. But here's William Bradford from November 29th, 1623. Inasmuch as the Great Father has given us this year an abundant harvest of Indian corn, wheat, peas, beans, squashes, and garden vegetables, and has made the forest to abound with game, and the sea with fish and clams, and inasmuch as he has protected us from the ravages of the savages, has spared us from pestilence and disease, has granted us freedom to worship God according to the dictates of our own conscience. Now I, your magistrate, do proclaim that all you pilgrims, with your wives and your little ones, do gather at the meeting house on the hill, between the hours of nine and twelve in the daytime, on Thursday, November twenty-ninth, of the year of our Lord, one thousand six hundred and twenty-three, and the third year since the pilgrims landed on Pilgrim Rock, there to listen to the pastor and render thanksgiving to the Almighty God for all his blessings. William Bradford, the governor of the colony. Hear how he understands things that we might call natural or features of nature, which would be okay as blessings of God, that the bounty that they found in nature uh, here in the new world was God's blessing. He made the forest to abound. He made the sea to abound. He made their crops to have increase. And he gave them, now this is, this is interesting, he, get, he granted them freedom to worship God according to the dictates of their own conscience. And that is a signal thing to understand about what we have always said in America about what we now call freedom of religion. That it is not ours and we do not give thanks for it on this day because the government granted to us or told us to show up in church on this day. That may be it was for the Plymouth Colony here. But we, we give thanks because God has given us these things, because our daily experience of life is not an experience, actually, of people or certain natural conditions or weather or any other proximate cause, something close by that seems obvious. I got this because I knew this person, or I got this because the deer was standing right underneath my, my tree stand. No, I received all those things, whatever other causes I may see, whether it's the weather or whatever, anything else. I have what I have. I am what I am. And I worship God as I do because he has given me freedom to do so, just as he has provided me with everything else that I need for this body and life. So there it's very fitting to go to church and to listen to the pastor, as William Bradford said, and to give thanksgiving to the almighty God for all his blessings. Now we'll hear the most original sources of the first Thanksgiving in 1621 in Plymouth, fall 1621 in Plymouth. Um, One is from William Bradford, whom we heard from in the last section, 
uh, and one is from Edward Winslow, who is the principal author of a document called Mort's Relation about life in early New England. In addition to that, I'm going to read you something you probably haven't heard of before, which is a letter of a man named William Hilton written about that time telling us about life and then, and, and also especially about the bounty that they found and the thanksgiving that they therefore rendered. So we'll start with Edward Winslow, then we'll do William Bradford. So this is from Edward Winslow's Mort's Relation. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men on fowling, that so we might after a special manner rejoice together, after we had gathered the fruits of our labors. They four in one day killed as much fowl as with a little help besides served the company almost a week, at which time amongst other recreations we exercised our arms, many of the Indians coming amongst us, and amongst the rest their greatest king Massasoit, with some ninety men, whom for three days we entertained and feasted, and they went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation, and bestowed on our governor, and upon the captain and others. Although it be not always so plentiful as it was at this time with us, yet by the goodness of God we are so far from want that we often wish you partakers of our plenty. And that was said by people that they wanted to uh, come over and join them in the Plymouth Colony. Here's William Bradford looking back on that first Thanksgiving from a greater distance in his book of Plymouth Plantation. They began now to gather in the small harvest they had and to fit up their houses and dwellings against winter, being all well recovered in health and strength and had all things in good plenty. For as some were thus employed in affairs abroad, others were exercised in fishing about cod and bass and other fish of which they took good store, of which every family had their portion. All the summer there was no want, and now began to come in store of fowl as winter approached, of which this place did abound when they came first, but afterward decreased by degrees. And besides waterfowl there was great store of wild turkeys, of which they took many, besides venison and so forth. Besides they had about a peck of meal a week to a person, or now since harvest Indian corn to that proportion." which made many afterwards write so largely of their plenty here to their friends in England, which were not feigned, but true reports. <laughs> so you can hear that the, the blessings are so many that the colonists are not believed necessarily, and Bradford has to assure them that he's actually telling the truth. Now this, this last relation is by uh, William Hilton, who arrived in, in November of 1621 and wrote a letter home. He was a passenger on a ship called the Fortune, and he writes to his cousin, he says, Loving cousin, at our arrival in New Plymouth in New England, we found all our friends and planters in good health, though they were left sick and weak with very small means. The Indians round about us peaceable and friendly, the country very pleasant and temperate, yielding naturally of itself great store of fruits as vines of diverse sorts in great abundance. There is likewise walnuts, chestnuts, small nuts, and plums, with much variety of flowers, roots, and herbs, no less pleasant than wholesome and profitable. No place hath more gooseberries and strawberries, nor better. Timber of all sorts you have in England doth cover the land, that affords beasts of diverse sorts, and great flocks of turkey, quails, pigeons, and partridges. Many great lakes abounding with fish, fowl, beavers, and otters. The sea affords us great plenty of all excellent sorts of sea fish, 
as the rivers and isles doth variety of wild fowl of most useful sorts. Minds we find to our thinking, but neither the goodness nor quality we know. Better grain cannot be than the Indian corn, if we will plant it upon as good ground as a man need desire. We are all freeholders. The rent day doth not trouble us. And all those good blessings we have, of which and what, we list in their seasons for taking. Our company are, for the most part, very religious, honest people. The word of God sincerely taught us every Sabbath, so that I know not anything a contented mind can here want. I desire your friendly care to send my wife and children to me, where I wish all the friends I have in England. And so I rest, your loving kinsman, William Hilton. The lists, which might seem tedious to you if you don't know what those different birds and and animals of different kinds are, are a, a list of blessings. They do tell the man how much they have here in New England, so he should come over and also bring Hilton's family with him, who have been left behind, I suppose, until he was established. But the lists are lists of blessing. And when you think about making lists, we often do that with to-do lists. But what if you just sat down, whether today or another day, uh, sometime around Thanksgiving would be good, and listed out blessings. You might not be able to get through it, but it wouldn't be because you didn't have enough there. And the listing of blessings that he has there is an experience of abundance uh, that is also part of their vision for what this is to be, what this America will be, which they will shape. We are all freeholders here. None of us fears the rent day, because there is enough for each of them. The blessings are abundant, and for that we give thanks. And to close us out, two beautiful poems by two 19th century American poets, uh, one probably known to you, one almost assuredly not known to you. I hope you explore more of both of them, if you uh, haven't before. Those poets are George Parsons Lathrop and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. We're going to read uh, Longfellow's poem, The Harvest Moon, first. It's, it's brief, uh, but beautiful, and captures this idea that I think we've seen in all the poems and to which poetry gives unique access, which is uh, the symbolism of life, that the dying of the light and the growing coldness make us think of death, something that the church here itself teaches us to learn that the changing of the seasons brings with it a change in us, and that as the light grows, we grow closer and closer to the day of resurrection, which comes with the spring. So this is from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, The Harvest Moon. It is the harvest moon on gilded veins and roofs of villages, on woodland crests and their aerial neighborhoods of nests deserted, on the curtained window panes of rooms where children sleep, on country lanes and harvest fields, its mystic splendor rests. Gone are the birds that were our summer guests, with the last sheaves return the laboring wains. All things are symbols. The external shows of nature have their image in the mind, as flowers and fruits and falling of the leaves. The songbirds leave us at the summer's close. Only the empty nests are left behind, and pipings of the quail among the sheaves. A ravishing picture of a deserted harvest field, encouraging you to think about all that goes away. 
But now this, and this is uh, sheer Yankee joy here in Thanksgiving Turkey by George Parsons Lathrop, who did not live very long, but published two wonderful books of poetry, one called Dreams and Days, and another much earlier in life, Rose and Roof Tree, and died far too early. Thanksgiving was, in its origin, especially in the 19th century, a largely New England holiday, not celebrated because of uh, other intervening holidays uh, in other places, such as Harvest Home among the Pennsylvania Germans, but also because it was a Yankee holiday uh, in places like the former Confederacy. So this was a this was a Yankee thing at the time, but now I hope it's a it's an all of us thing, and we're all familiar with turkey. So here is George Parsons Lathrop, the Thanksgiving turkey. Valleys lay in sunny vapor, and a radiance mild was shed from each tree that like a taper at a feast stood. Then we said, Our feast too shall soon be spread of good Thanksgiving turkey. And already still November drapes her snowy table here. Fetch a log, then, coax the ember, fill your hearts with old-time cheer. Heaven be thanked for one more year, and our Thanksgiving turkey. Welcome, brothers, all our party gathered in the homestead old. Shake the snow off, and with hearty handshakes drive away the cold. Else your plate you'll hardly hold of good Thanksgiving turkey. When the skies are sad and murky, tis a cheerful thing to meet round this homely roast of turkey. Pilgrims pausing just to greet, then with earnest grace to eat a new Thanksgiving turkey. And the merry feast is freighted with its meanings true and deep, those we've loved and those we've hated. All today the right will keep, all today their dishes heap with plump Thanksgiving turkey. But how many hearts must tingle now with mournful memories? In the festal wine shall mingle unseen tears, perhaps from eyes that look beyond the board where lies our plain Thanksgiving turkey. See around us, drawing nearer, those faint yearning shapes of air, friends then whom earth holds none dearer. No, alas, they are not there. Have they then forgot to share our good Thanksgiving turkey? Some have gone away and tarried, strangely long by some strange wave, some have turned to foes, we carried some unto the pine-girt grave. They'll come no more so joyous brave to thank Thanksgiving turkey. Nay, repine not, let our laughter leap like firelight up again. Soon we touch the wide hereafter, snow-field yet untrod of men. Shall we meet once more, and when, to eat Thanksgiving turkey? You can see how Thanksgiving contains within itself both joy but also sadness because any time that you get together with people you've loved and people that you don't love very much but you're still supposed to so you get together and <laughs> and Lathrop makes reference to that. Those we love and those we hate, they're all there. When you get together with them, the significance is not so much that you loved or hated them as that they they are there. And that... There are those who used to be there who are not. And you can see over so much time, we've moved from a very couple of centuries after Christ all the way down to the 19th century after Christ. You can see that the seasons and the time bring with them thoughts peculiar to them. And that when you are attuned to those seasons and that passage of time, the way that God has ordained it with the sun and the moon and the stars, you begin to see things of significance, both beautiful and ugly, 
and joyous and sad, that it's all there. And especially in poetry, that language rises to a pitch it often doesn't reach because words are so cheap so often and shows us the joy of being with those with whom we give thanks and the sadness that there are those who are absent or at least now for a time distant. But soon we touch the wide hereafter and soon we see them again. I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving with whomever you are celebrating and we'll talk to you again soon.